0: Welcome to New Books in Critical Theory. On this episode, I'm talking to Nancy Wang Yuen about Real Inequality, Hollywood Actors and Racism, which was published by Rutgers University Press. Welcome to New Books in Critical Theory. On this episode, I'm talking to Nancy Wang Yuen, who is an Associate Professor of Sociology at Biola University in California, about her excellent new book, Real Inequality, Hollywood Actors and Racism. So welcome to the pod.
1: Thank you so much.
0: Um, This is a really important book and it's a really accessible book and I'm really delighted uh, to be talking about it with you and I think one place to start is with your sort of interest in questions of racism and um, cultural production. So where did the kind of the idea about writing a, a book about Hollywood come from? Is it something that you'd kind of had a know a long-standing interest in or had it developed you know with with academic interests where did the kind of starting point for the book begin
1: the starting point started with uh, me as a young immigrant to the United States I was about five when I immigrated and I was a latchkey kid my dad was pretty much a single dad so I watched television as a socializing agent I didn't know much about the United States. Um, well, I, I did think it was a nation of white people. That was what I thought. But when I actually immigrated to Southern California, a, a city called Long Beach, California, I the neighborhood was incredibly diverse and though I watched a lot of television, it didn't reflect that diversity. So I think I grew up not necessarily aware of that, because I was, again, being socialized into kind of what is this place that I've immigrated to, and seeing the world as pretty much completely white on television. It wasn't until I guess, university that I started, I was an English major. So I was interested in discourse. And I started reading and and seeing film and television as discourse and coming to an understanding that with a critical perspective right that that there was something wrong with the representation of of the united states as a completely white nation pretty much with or at least the narratives the dominant narratives were surrounding white men mostly and and women and people of color were always kind of on the side either as spoils villains or sidekicks so that's that's where my interest began
0: yeah and this sets up the discussion of the book perfectly because it it identifies that distance between what America is like in terms of um, its ethnic gender um, composition and then in terms of what's on stage and and what's on screen. Um, And one route into this is um, a kind of, I guess, public campaign around the Oscars and the hashtag Oscars so white um, and the way that that mobilised interest um, beyond just the kind of Critical academic sphere in thinking about racial inequality. In,
1: yeah, in I think. Yeah, I think that uh, that Oscar so why was so interesting because it isn't new, especially to academics. Like you said, we we especially those who do critical race. We know that that's something that's been around since the beginnings of Hollywood, since the beginning, even before then, right? With minstrelsy, with performance, that was uh, uh, it's the entertainment world of uh, the United States always kind of interacted with the uh, the the current socioeconomic kind of and cultural landscape of, of of racism and sexism. And so I think that the fact that um the hashtag Oscar so white uh came out from you know someone who was not academic it was from uh, an activist attorney named April Reigns and and then it kind of took off on social media and really there is so much interest actually popular interest in representation, uh, in film and television. I'm on Twitter. I'm very, um, active on Twitter and I've met so many kind of young activists, cultural kind of, I would say cultural critics. They're not, they're, you know, they're probably college educated, but they're not necessarily researchers yet. They are, they're on the cutting edge, I think of writing about this stuff in a very kind of, um, witty, and what what they're what's called like throwing shade, where they're really <laughs> where they're really where they're they can actually speak about this in ways I think that are more uh cutting and more appealing than academics. a lot of my academic friends who who work on racism like we're we're, we feel so stunted by our training in terms of having to sound objective all the time when, when really we're not objective, right? Even as we're, we're taking critical race perspectives, that's not objective. But the way that we talk about it has to be so sanitized. And so when I look at popular critics like you know black girl nerds or um, or angry asian man these people are are really you know speaking into the culture in ways that i think academics can learn from in terms of having kind of a more um populist i don't want to use populism <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. popular popularly appealing voice
0: i mean that, that's one of the things the book does really really well it's so kind of clear so accessible so so easy to read but at the same time it's got A really serious academic project. Um, And I think, uh, I can't remember how many exactly, but, you know, there's a couple of hundred interviews that you did around Hollywood. This is, you know, a a serious bit of research that underpins um, this kind of, yeah, straightforward and, and easy to read text. So.
1: Thank you. I Yeah, I started this research back in 2000 with my um, dissertation research. Well, actually, my master's thesis research then evolved to my dissertation research. So I have been hanging out with Hollywood actors since 2000, as well as people behind the scenes, just from an academic perspective, right, because I am an outsider. But I think as an outsider, I can take a more uh, quote unquote objective in terms of at least someone who is who knows nothing about the industry and kind of documenting everything that I can see and hear. And so just really being able to take that academic training and bring it into this realm, I think was something that, that, yeah, that I wanted to really bring out into the book. And when I thought about my audience, because, you know, a dissertation is pretty much (laughs) not, not readable at all to even anybody, probably (laughs) anyone else outside of my committee. But, um, but I think that having, having the stories, that was kind of the basis. I wanted these voices of the actors. I interviewed a hundred actors and I interviewed African American, Latinx, um, Asian American, white actors, and I wanted to do a comparative study, which hasn't been done really. You know, most most um, most academic studies are single group, or or they're not they're not looking because I felt like the the comparative aspect really brought power to to what I was arguing because it's it's easy to say oh you know this this group experiences racism but it's more powerful to say well these groups experience racism but then the white group actually did not experience racism in the same way so because I asked them the same exact questions and I wanted to measure whether there were differences across groups and there indeed were in fact a lot of the white actors admitted that they had an advantage over actors of color overwhelmingly. And so I think that that makes the book because I actually do talk about white actors, even though when I most of the time, actually, when I when I do interviews and such, I talk about the actors of color, but I do talk to white actors and I and I and I actually use their voices in the book to kind of uh, show that there are indeed differences, because one can just say, well, actors are, you know, so hard to be it's so hard to break into acting, as we saw in La La Land, the kind of the kind of trope about how difficult it is for for a young you know actor to just make it in Hollywood. But then the truth is there are specific barriers that actors of color uh, face that white actors don't face in Hollywood.
0: I mean, the the book is, is really detailed on on that latter point. Um, but before I, I kind of ask you about um, the substantive content of the book, I wonder if you could kind of go back to where we started and, and tell me a little bit about the effects of media stereotypes. So you mentioned, you know, that kind of perception you had growing up that America is basically this kind of all white country uh, run largely by all white men. And, you know, the extent to which that's changed um, is a bit bit of a problem. But what other kind of, I guess, kind of impacts or effects are there of the, uh, the really quite problematic media stereotypes that, um, you know, motivated you to do the research in the book?
1: Yeah, so I think that even though I said that I viewed as a young person that, you know, those stereotypes or the the lack of representation in combination with the stereotypes uncritically, it doesn't mean that i wasn't impacted right and research shows that that young people especially people of color and women when they're the more hours they consume of television the lower their self esteem is so that, that's a huge finding in terms of media effects and so for and for all groups of people when they're when they have when they have limited contact with people other groups people of other racial groups in real life they look to the media for understanding. And, and that's, that's where their images and their understandings of those groups are formed, right? Because they're not, if they don't have any kind of personal contact with people to, to dispel those stereotypes, those images become the, the minds and in our, in our interactions with other groups. So this is, this is really problematic in terms of just thinking of media as entertainment because it isn't just mere entertainment, especially for young people whose identities are being formed. And we know that a lot of times the the television set or, or the now the various devices, iPads, whatever people use, that those are the babysitters now for young people. I have children myself, and I'm very aware of um, just even like the Disney princess culture. Of, for I have girls, and you know who are the princesses—the blonde hair, blue eyed princesses—sometimes brown hair but mostly white and having to counter-program that in my own uh, raising of my own children and just thinking about how they're shaped in terms of beauty standards and self-esteem and all those things those are those are vital realms that the, that media infiltrate without us even being conscious of it.
0: Oh yeah totally and actually um, one of the things I found most interesting in the middle of the book was the interaction of these Uh, stereotypes and the kind of the labor market for for actors so you know you talk in quite a lot of detail about how you know typecasting um, is almost an extension of these kinds of images of you know certain racial groups are assumed to be able to play only certain character types um, which you know then in turn you know serves to kind of perpetuate these uh, these stereotypes that are not only not true but also you know, are kind of shaping how our children, our families and, you know, to an extent ourselves, see the rest of the world around us.
1: Yes, absolutely. And therefore, when Hollywood is capitalizing off of that, right, they they have a lot of excuses about why they, they portray only certain groups. They talk about the middle America audience, especially in television, where they're trying to reach the widest. Uh, cross-section, you know, of potential consumers, right, in terms of advertisements. And so they they then project this idea, especially since the majority of Hollywood movers and shakers in terms of studio heads, all the way from financi- financiers, studio heads, to directors, producers, and then even actors. I think that they are projecting their own sense of who are the audiences out there, even though we know that demographic shifts aren't true, right? So demographic shifts are, that in fact, most, you know, we have more babies of color than, than, than white babies currently. I think that even extends to under the age of five, the majority of of kids under the five and under are kids of color. And we know that by the projections by 2041, that the United States will be a majority minority uh, society. So then, so then these audiences that they're projecting are, don't exist in the way that they they traditionally have thought of. And yet those myths, those conventions that are in this art world of Hollywood, they're very strong because Hollywood is a very high risk industry, as we know, right? There are so many more flops than there are hits. And so having these myths and conventions, they still have so much power, even if actual data contradicts that, that myth, they still operate as if only white men are going to sell tickets, are going to uh, you know, raise raise ratings and, and invite audiences in. And so those, those conventions are very powerful and they, they get perpetuated in, in various ways. And one of them is yeah, the, the kind of market argument that, that only white men, white male dominant uh, narratives will sell.
0: One of the things you do really, really quite usefully in the first chapter is is kind of set out this, um, I guess, pattern um, of underrepresentation across the industry in Hollywood, and it, and it speaks directly to that that kind of idea about who is making decisions. That it, you know, it's not just the question of say Oscars so white being about who is in the running for Best Actor or whatever, but actually what we have is a a really kind of seriously sort of um, racially unequal production system in the workforce. So I wonder if you could say a little bit about the kind of patterns of exclusions and underrepresentations in the workforce.
1: Yeah. So there's been historically a systemic kind of exclusion in terms of just unions. So the in the past the unions were that the only way you can get into kind of Hollywood unions were that if you were related to somebody like by, by blood, right? So that's that's already an exclusionary factor if you're not you know, related to someone and if everyone in that union happens to be white or white ethnic in the beginning, to to have that barrier is, is an obvious systemic barrier. But even after those kind of criteria were removed, it's still the informal social networks is how Hollywood operates that the hiring really is about who you know and so who you know is is one that that really is still perpetuated by by race right because we know that the the Pew Center found that whites in America have 91% social circle of other whites right so within their social circle it's very limited and so when they're hiring people then it, it is to you know to perpetuate the same kind of racist um exclusion and inclusion of only whites and so and even on top of that there's the comfort factor that people tend to hire people who they're comfortable with so then so all of these factors you know play into kind of a a very very homogenous workforce and it's actually more homogenous studies have shown that the the corporate boards of of These Hollywood companies are actually more racially homogenous than even other corporate boards outside of the entertainment industry. So it's it's ridiculous, I think, in some ways to think that um, for Hollywood to, to to kind of portray itself as a very progressive industry when when in fact it's actually more racially exclusive than other industries that aren't seen as progressive or liberal, quote unquote liberal. And so, yeah, so these workforces are very homogenous and I think then the narratives reflect about homogeneity, right? That in fact, that the stories that are being told uh, tend to surround those lived experiences or those, those perceptions of what, what people want to see and that, that then, you know makes Hollywood we could do a hashtag of Hollywood so white, right? It's not just the the kind of award system that also perpetuates it, but throughout the entire pipeline, it's very, very difficult. And then also even you know I've been talking to people recently even about before you even get into the industry, what kind of people are able to afford to intern for free because a lot of the the kind of getting into the industry is through these informal internships that are unpaid. And so who can, who can afford to have an unpaid internship for a year, you know, to, to even get into the, the system. So, so I think that, yeah, there's just a lot of, I think, barriers along the way that make it very difficult for, for people of color to, to kind of break into this, this insular industry.
0: Yeah. I mean, it's, it's, it's really clear there as well. Again, another great thing about the book is that you've got an obviously intersectional understanding of, you know, the way that it's not just a kind of a a question of race, but we've also got, you know, what the Brits would call social class, but, you know, kind of stratification and social and economic status and and money and then gender as well. Um, And and what's fascinating, you mentioned that kind of, you know, Hollywood has this sort of liberal story. It tells about itself. Um, And in the second chapter, you kind of pick that apart by saying that, Hollywood has got these three stories to kind of excuse its lack of diversity, you know, excuse its whiteness about, you know, it blames the talent, it blames the market, or it blames this kind of like, well, it's about who you know, and it's about being safe. So I wonder if you could tell me about sort of Hollywood's excuses, basically.
1: Yeah, I think Hollywood's excuses ties in well with its self narrative of it being progressive, right? Because they don't want to admit that they're racist, sexist, but they can certainly... Blame the audience, right? Oh, well, the middle American audience—that's what they want. It's not what we want. It's what they want, and so that's part of the the market. The very kind of—I think sometimes they say it's not a black and white issue. It's a green issue, right? So yeah, it's yeah. where the money is, which is just—it's uh, a total excuse because it—it it, the data shows that actually box office um, box office draws are highest for films with diverse casts. And even internationally, the Fast and Furious film franchise does very well, both domestically and internationally. And that's a very that's a majority people of color cast there. And then you have the fact that um, that television ratings are now shown to to be highest for casts that are at least forty you percent know, people of color, or at least and social media engagement. This is UCLA study that just came out this month that um, this last month that. That social engagement peaks when when there are shows that have diversity that reflects the United States population, and so these are these are most recent studies that actually show that diversity sells, and that that selling point isn't just for people of color; it's for white among white audiences as well. So this is again the problematic idea that only that white people only want to see white people, right? When you know when when our society is not. Is not as um, as as homogenous as Hollywood portrays it to be, and Hollywood industry is right. So, so that's that's the market argument, which is probably the strongest argument in Hollywood because everyone. They, it's true people just care about money, but they don't understand that it's biases and not actual uh, reality that drives those 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 narratives. And so they also and so colorblind. So I talk about colorblind racism. This is probably the most academic (laughs) term that I have in my book. But it's there's already been theories about how colorblind rationales are used to perpetuate racism in our societies without actually coming out and sounding racist. Right. And so it's very common in Hollywood to blame the talent, which is You know, just blaming, blaming people of color for their, for their situation, which is very common in society in general. But in Hollywood, it takes on kind of a special um, special characteristics in terms of, okay, well, they're just, you know, the, the the actors of color are just not ready. You know, they're just not prepared. But the problem is it's like, it's a vicious cycle when they're not allowed to enter the industry or they're not hired or there are no roles written for them, right? There's just no characters written that actually will cast for people of color because they're writing mostly white characters. So then that then results in those those actors of color not building their resumes because there're just not as many roles for them to even build their resume. So, so then they aren't honing their craft. Except, you know, they're going to to Pan-Ethnic theaters and they're going to independent films and even YouTube now, but historically that, you know, that it's there there's just not enough volume of roles in big blockbuster films that are casting for for people of color and so the whole they're not ready, you know, or they're not experienced. Well, if you keep, you know, the barriers up so that they can't actually get those roles that that's a self-perpetuating myth and then on top of that the the idea is that um, another blame the talent thing that they do is they they say there's not enough of them right there's not there's just not enough we can't find them we want to cast someone of color but we can't find them the problem is that they're not looking hard enough i talked to one talent um agent who who said that it's really hard to find Asian American actors. And I said, oh, have you looked at East West Players, which is the, the kind of leading pan-ethnic theater that's located in Los Angeles. And it's it's the oldest running pan-ethnic theater in the United States. And she had never heard of it. She had never heard of East West Players. And that's right there in LA. So if you want to cast someone, it's so easy to kind of go there. But she had never heard of it. So, so they're not looking hard enough. And then the, the last myth that I talk about is Is kind of blame the write what you know, like um, uh, Woody Allen and Nina Dunham both, you know, write stories that are set in New York and New York. Of course, New York City is one of the most diverse cities in the United States. And yet their their portrait of New York is completely white. And both of them have said, well, you know, this is my lived experience. This is my experience. So so therefore, I don't know anybody of color. And Lena Dunham even said, like, oh, well, I don't want to write someone and come off as inauthentic. It's this idea that somehow people of color's experiences are so vastly different. Not that there aren't unique traits, but it's like they're so different that I can't even – imagine them in my world um whereas you know one can imagine aliens and and in fact one study found that you're more likely to see an alien probably portrayed by and portrayed by a white actor than an asian-american female right on screen that 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 the kind of um biases don't allow them to see that they're, they're 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 bad they're the reason why they don't have people of color isn't that you know they can't imagine it's imagine them that there is this bias because they can certainly imagine aliens or monsters or serial killers even if they don't know one in person right it's just it's this um it's again an excuse that when you interrogate it and break it down it doesn't hold any water and what it all comes down to is bias right
0: and and this this has a really kind of terrible effect on the working lives of actors on screen uh talent who are excluded um and so you know there's kind of definite limits on who can get in, who can kind of build careers, the compromises they have to make. But I, I was really very interested in, in chapter four's idea about the double bind, about um, actors, you know, not being American enough, but not being ethnic enough. And, and that being another, I guess, another layer of excuse. So it'd be interesting to to unpack the double bind.
1: Yeah, so this is a really interesting what is it called like it's 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 a paradox right where we're, yeah. where actors of color so on top of the fact that they you know they can't there's not enough characters when there are characters written characters of color a lot of times they don't they don't they can't they don't get cast because they don't fit into that stereotype which of course you know we're not stereotypes but then they expect actors of color to go in there and be that stereotype and they and what's Really scary is that it's synonymous. Their race is synonymous with those stereotype traits. So then, when actors, for example, Asian American actors go in and they read for a role, and they're reading it like the way I'm talking right now with a just kind of your average American accent in terms of not, you know, not not having kind of an international accent. They're, they're told to, can you read that more Asian? You know, can you, can you, can you be more Asian? Which means, you know, read with an accent that, yeah. that sounds like, you yeah. know, well, actually it's not even that that sounds like an authentic accent of someone who is an immigrant coming to this country. They want a stereotype accent, right? Because there was one actor that actually came in to read for a role for a Japanese mafia role. And he studied kind of Toshio Mifune's kind of pronunciation of, of English so they could really get that Japanese accent, you know, when, when speaking English down. And when he did it, the casting agent was like, that's not that's not an, that's not a Japanese accent. So then he thought, OK, what she's probably wanting is the stereotype accent. That's kind of this mishmash, maybe sort of Chinese, but really kind of just made up. And he did that accent, and she's like, oh, that's the Japanese accent I was looking for. So so here are, is a casting agent who is, is essentially looking for a stereotype accent and equating that with, Authenticity, right. right? And and you know, in Hollywood, most of these jobs, there's not a school that you go to. I mean, there's film school for filmmakers, but at the casting agent and the and the the casting director and the talent agent levels, there's not actual training except on the job. So they're just being socialized into these these stereotype expecting kind of uh, mentalities. And and of course, you know, they're not the only, they're not solely responsible for that because. Again, our Hollywood is an art world where there's so many people who buy into these these narrow perceptions of people of color. Whereas, you know, as we know, white actors can play anything under the sun, including people of color. Right. So we're this has been historical, but there's been more, I think, attention brought towards the idea of whitewashing that there's all these white actors playing persians playing Asians playing you know even actually you know in the UK there was that you know um the fines playing Michael Jackson yeah, right yeah, so yeah. <laughs> i know it didn't happen but he got he even got into the kind of prosthetics or something yeah. i mean there was that horrible image of of joseph fines as as Michael Jackson and and i think that the idea is that, again, that's acting, right? Oh, actors can play anything. But that standard isn't extended to actors of color most of the time. It's very, very rare. And even to the extreme point where actors of color cannot even play people of color.
0: Yeah. I mean, we've, myself and my colleagues have done this in our own work where, you know, that kind of sense of like the, the white, rich, you know, middle class, well-schooled guys is like the norm. You know, it's what's normal for for the industry, and then everybody else is immediately kind of like, "Well, you can probably, you know, maybe play our like expectations or stereotypes, but you, you know, but you're not the norm." Um,
1: yes, the whole James Bond controversy. Oh yeah, right? yeah,
0: Idris Elba and and now yeah, I mean, there was something I saw. They were talking about an American actor playing Bond, and it's like that's you know, a white American guy is more normal than a black Brit to play James Bond, and it tells you so much about the assumptions. Um, yes,
1: because that's that happened with Lucy Liu and Kate Winslet. There was yeah. a psychological study of who is seen as more American by undergraduate students, and and they picked Kate Winslet over Lucy Liu, right? And Lucy Liu was born and raised in Queens, New York, but she was not seen as a quote unquote American as Kate Winslet, who's you know who's played American characters right? She was in yeah. the Titanic, yeah. and so but people don't see that it's 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 about race, right? It's about race and not and not really nationality.
0: Um, usually most academic work kind of says here's a bunch of problems and then it stops so so one of the things I really like about real inequality is that there's a whole bunch of stuff about what we can do to change this Um, and partially this comes through your understanding of how the people you were interviewing and kind of hanging out with how they had their own individual strategies for like surviving the Hollywood machine but also in the final chapter you talk about you know how you, how we can make Hollywood more diverse from you know unions organizations and through to audiences so I wonder if you could give us a kind of like um something hopeful to, uh, to to bring to a conclusion
1: yeah, I really took a risk in writing a conclusion chapter that was more advocacy than kind of theoretical you know how does this speak to our to our body of thoughts and, and as academics, I, I hate, I honestly, I hate reading those chapters cause I feel like they're very self self indulgent or, or ivory tower indulgent. And I really wanted to write something that I felt like could, could, could give a solution to the experiences of the actors of color who, who so graciously shared their stories with me and I wanted it to actually make a difference, you know, and, and that was that was a risk because I I didn't know how to write that kind of chapter because yeah, I had not yeah, read yeah. a lot of chapters like that. Um, I actually had to take take cues from this this great book called Reality Bites by it's written by not I don't think she's an academic and the, her advocacy chap or she, her final chapter was actually all these compilations of. Of suggestions and solutions from activists, right? So I really loved that. And when I read that, I thought, okay, I want to write something like that myself. But from kind of synthesizing what I have observed over the years, and what I thought and taking taking kind of cues from other maybe other industries and and I know that the the moonly the the is it the, the Rooney law right from from football oh, yeah, yeah. that from was something football, that Spike yeah. Lee had had mentioned and people in the industry had already mentioned that you know the idea is that when you hire someone you need to first, you need to make sure that you are interviewing someone of color or, or a woman for that for that job and so I think that incorporating those kind of ideas into a final chapter where I I think that Hollywood is such a huge machine that there needs to be kind of a multi-pronged approach, both from, from kind of at the government level, at the industry level and, and the average everyday audience level as well as actors, right? So, so actors I talked about probably a little less in the final chapter because I had already, like you said, kind of laid out what they were doing in the industry but then and then and then outside of the, the final chapter, I also had an appendix of organizations, right, that people can actually join advocacy organization, media advocacy organizations that that they can be a part of because there are there are actually quite a few like the Gina Davis Institute for, yeah, yeah. for women and women of color. And as well as individual kind of racial groups. The the, the, the NAACP um, has always been historically actually protesting ever since Birth of a Nation. They've had a history of protest against Hollywood's misrepresentations of African Americans. So, so yeah, so all that is in there in terms of what people can do. And I guess one thing I can share is that certainly this is kind of a, a no-brainer, but I think people don't understand how Hollywood works if, you know, you're just kind of seeing it as an entertainment industry and not seeing it critically, but going to see, going to support films that you think represent diversity or advance kind of the, the social project is seeing those films in the first two opening weekends, right? Because Hollywood looks at those numbers and they decide to green light future projects based on the content of those. And I think that, uh, for example, hidden figures was, uh, was, did very well in the first two opening weekends in fact it beat out rogue 1 which was the top box office hit of 2016 in those weekends and that was big news and i actually went to see hidden figures with my girls in in those in that you know opening weekend and i felt like oh you know i contributed to that that those numbers and i think that and so the fact that the movie about three black women you know who are part of american history us history who've never who you know we never knew they literally were hidden that, that that sold so well, I think, hopefully opens up Hollywood to, to be able to say, OK, let's do more films starring women of color. And so those are those are kind of easy things to do in terms of just going to support projects, but you know, also using social media to protest because a lot of times people will not go, not go see movies because of social media. And I don't know if the great wall did so poorly in the United States because of all the kind of social <laughs> yeah, yeah. media, kind of like what is going on? Why yeah. would you have a movie set in China, yeah. historic China and have a white male savior? And so I don't know if that's part of it, but, <laughs> um, but certainly it didn't help it, you know, to be, you know, help or it didn't hurt. It, it hurt it. it. It wouldn't have helped it. So,
0: yeah. Yeah. Um, I mean, we, we, we've like scratched the surface of what's a really, really rich book based on a, a really important um, research project that I think sort of everybody should read, really. And certainly in the UK, um, it speaks to debates that are going on like literally today in, in the UK. So, you know, hopefully it'll get an international audience to sort of finish up. Are you are you doing more of this kind of research or um, have you got, you know, a kind of completely different new new research project?
1: I have one that's related. It's ten years ago, or now eleven years ago, I did i I helped pioneer the first kind of policy study, research large scale research study on Asian Americans and Pacific Islanders in television. And so ten years ago, it was really, really bad. But now, ten years later, we are looking to see if there are improvements, and we've completed the first phase. We're entering the second phase of looking at. Things at in terms of not just numbers, but also the quality of characters. So the stereotyping, right? Whether Asian American Asian characters, including actually, we have a lot of Asian Brit character, uh, actors, you know, over here in terms of South Asian, um, you know, in in starting in including Riz Ahmed, right? He's the one that's been that's been um, in the news in yeah, terms of yeah, yeah, speaking yeah, yeah. speaking to Parliament and such. And so he so he's in one of the shows, and so. So looking at the representations and looking at it's so interesting because we, uh, you know, 10 years ago, we looked at accents and we were looking at whether characters have Asian accents or just not, you know, whatever, average American yeah. accents. But now we're including British accents in that because we <laughs> do have kind of the British invasion and, and actors in all forms. Right. And there was that that interesting um, article that came out about, uh, with Samuel Jackson critiquing the kind of invasion of, of black British actors. So anyway, so this is, this is interesting that there is that kind of overlap in terms of critiques and interests. So, so yeah, so we're, we're doing a 10 year follow up with that and, and seeing kind of where Asian American and Pacific Islander, including international. So we're including international, so just Asian, Asian, uh, broadly speaking, um, in, in terms of representation in Hollywood
0: sounds fantastic i'll look forward to uh, to seeing that great thanks for listening to new books in critical theory i've been your host dr dave o'brien on this episode i was talking to dr nancy wang Yuen, who's an associate professor of sociology at biola university in california about real inequality hollywood actors and racism which is published by Rutgers university press